Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! <laughs> 2023! Where did 2022 go? I feel we just recorded like this similar episode for last year and that's already a year later. The magic of time. So for this new year, we have, well, I, I think we always say our episodes are pretty special, but we have a, another great episode lined up and we'll speak to Jason Danley. And he'll take us to the world of aging and the world of Japan. And he's also done some comparative research. And at the time of recording, he was talking about a book he was writing. And since recording, that book has been published. And the book is called Fragile Resonance, Caring for Older Family Members in Japan and England. So Jason has done some comparative research between the UK and Japan um, with informal carers and I've started reading it and it's really, so far, really lovely, nice ethnographic accounts and personal experiences of people caring for their older loved ones. And also in the interview, we talk a bit about comparative research that he's done. Yeah, I was really excited with this episode to hear more about comparative approaches reflecting back on Kiati's episode, Kiati Tripathi, who had talked about a real need for more comparative work. And listening to Jason talk, there are just so many interesting synergies, but also so many interesting differences in terms of how people think about and approach aging, death and dying. And it was really yeah, exciting for me to hear these kind of different perspectives and to have that idea of, of looking at two different cultures and, and kind of comparing them especially with an anthropologist who is able to really think about those very individual differences and the nuances of different cultural approaches rather than um i think sometimes if if you're engaging with comparative work that is not in the context of of academia because of the constraints of publishing and all sorts of different reasons, sometimes it can be a little bit sweeping and broad and we don't get any of that with Jason's wonderful nuance and details discussion. Absolutely. I've only read like two chapters so far of this book, but he's also emphasizing not only the differences, but the similarities and that this book on informal carers are people caring for their older relatives, that an overarching theme is just people love their family and they're trying to do what's best <laughs> for the people that they love. So. And we also want to tell our listeners that Jason, at the time of recording, was in his office. So there is there is some background noise. I think a, a phone rings at least twice. <laughs> so just it's, but it was also nice for him to be inside his office because it was also still at the time, uh, and I think still to this day, a lot of people are still working from home. So it was just really lovely for someone to be in an office and working. And so, yeah. We lived vicariously through Jason. Yes. <laughs> we were, as usual, not in our office. And so without further ado, Jason Danley is a reader in anthropology at Oxford Brookes University, where he is the chair of the Healthy Aging and Care Research Innovation and Knowledge Exchange Network, having studied comparative religions and Asian studies before pursuing his PhD in anthropology. 
Jason's research began as an exploration of the ritual lives of older people in urban Japan. This research tells the story of Japan's aging society through detailed portraits of older men and women as they actively anticipate their own deaths while caring and memorializing their ancestors. This research led to his first book, Aging and Loss, Mourning and Maturity in Contemporary Japan. And this work led then to research on unpaid caregivers of older family members who experience similar feelings of grief and loss, often leading to a deeper appreciation for end-of-life care. His most recent book, released in October 2022, is titled Fragile Resonance, Caring for Older Family Members in Japan and England. And his current research looks at the experiences of loss from the perspective of formerly incarcerated older people. We hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on this podcast. Um, we've just been doing some calculations and we think we've met in 2015 at an anthropology conference in London. So that has been a while. And on your profile, we read that you've been interested in aging and Japan uh, since 2005. So we were wondering what sparked your interest in researching both aging and Japan. Yes, well, it's great to see you uh, again after so long that I do remember meeting you at that conference and, and just being really interested uh, in your work. I'm always interested in, you know, young scholars that are interest, interested in, in doing work with older people and uh, end of life care and uh, issues around death. I didn't really start with that kind of interest in mind, uh, personally. For me, I was interested in Japan and, and ritual and religion. My background was in comparative religion before coming to anthropology. But I was really interested in, you know, the, the role that religion played in people's everyday lives and their, in their everyday experience. Uh, and so anthropology was a, a very obvious choice for me. Once I started to get into the anthropology aspect of it, I thought about, okay, well, who is, who's really involved in doing ritual and religious stuff in Japan? And it was the older people, right? And I started to look into that. And I started to think about older people's developmental trajectory, I guess you could say. I started to look at work uh, of people like Eric Erickson, who sort of extended this notion of, of the developmental life course, you know, through the, the entire life course through into old age. Uh, and this idea that we continue to develop and, and that we continue to discover new aspects of ourselves as we grow older and, and reflect on, on previous times in our lives um, was really inspiring to me. I really wanted to explore this further. And I really saw a close connection between this and the kind of rituals that I saw older people uh, investing a lot of attention in, in Japan. So I suppose that's how I got interested in this um, subject. And, and then when I started the fieldwork, of course, it, it sort of took on a life of its own. And I, I started to explore uh, aspects of grief and mourning uh, a lot more uh, and, and the role that played in, in, in people's lives, uh, especially in Japan. I will say that, you know, the first time I went to Japan, that was actually in 1990, 
1994. Uh, now it's uh, 2005. So 1994, I was, um, you know, 17 years old. I went to uh, Japan for the first time. It was basically I just wanted to get as far away from the suburbs of Detroit as I could get. And so <laughs> that was Japan. And I stayed with a family there. And right next door was the sort of grandmother of the family. Right. And, and she had been sort of recently bereaved. And I remember being taken over to her home and there was a room there with an altar with a portrait of her husband who had recently deceased. And she brought him the paper every day. So there was a newspaper laid out. She had something for him to eat, something for him to drink, some implements, things that he liked during his life. He liked playing uh, this game Go. So they had some game pieces there. So there was all this attention, real personal attention to this, this, the memory of this, uh, this uh, person. And I, and I got really curious about that. And then I started hanging out with the grandmother a lot. <laughs> and um, we went to the graves. We you know, did various sort of rituals at the household altar. And uh, it was wonderful. And uh, at that time, I didn't know that I was going to continue on this path, of course. But uh, I, I think that was uh, a really important experience, uh, sort of initial in inspiration. And so I said, I'm going to study Japanese. I'm going to get back there and I'm going to do more of this stuff. It's really great. Great. And just out of curiosity, because you said I, I wanted to get as far away from Detroit as possible. How did you end up in the UK? Because that's where you're based right now. Right. Well... I had gone back to, so I had studied in Japan uh, and I had then gone to graduate school at uh, UC San Diego. I did some, some of my research in, in Kyoto uh, and then came back to California. I taught a little while different places in the States. And then I, uh, I answered a, 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 you know, a, a call, a job ad that was looking for someone who did Japan anthropology. And that doesn't come around very often. I thought this is a good opportunity. And, um, yeah, I wanted to, to see what's going on in, uh, across the uh, ocean here or as anthropology as well. So, yeah, I just think I, I wanted to keep on exploring. I think <laughs> we anthropologists like doing that kind of Absolutely. And I think you've already started talking about some of our next question because you've written a monograph called Aging and Loss, Mourning and Maturity in Contemporary Japan, which is based on your ethnographic research in Japan. We were wondering if... You if you could explain to people who are not familiar with ethnography, the way of describing what that is. Ethnography is a lot of different things for me. Ethnography means a real commitment to a place and, and to people that are participating in your research. It means really committing to them, building these relationships over a long period of time through a lot of a long process of kind of negotiation and uh, you know building trust and 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 through those relationships getting to a deeper understanding i suppose of what uh, it means to to be in their shoes to, to be in their world and it's not perfect of course but i i do feel that that you do get insight through this in into the very ordinary everyday and subtle sort of aspects of someone's life. And often you get insight into these sort of spontaneous things that, that come up and how they respond to that. And that is something I think that is really, just really uh, unique, I think, through this approach. I'm, I'm constantly going to other 
uh, seminars and, and so on of people in different disciplines. And I, I'm always coming out of it saying, I'm so glad I'm an anthropologist because I just think um, that what we get out of doing this very long, very labor-intensive, very committed work is a much deeper understanding of the world, of other people's world, and the, the limits of that uh, kind of process. But for me, I, I did, uh, in my initial research, again, starting in 2005, I did about 18 months of straight of research in Kyoto, and that meant I, I got there and I, I joined the Neighborhood Association, and I got to know the people uh, who lived around me. I, I started to sort of frequent the uh, restaurants and cafes around there and getting to know all those people. Uh, I started to expand this network out, going to community centers for older people and, and joining these sort of older people's clubs and volunteer groups. Uh, I started to then sort of snowball sample out. In other words, I met a lot of people and they then introduced me to other people um, that might be interested in the things that I was interested in. And gradually my, my circles expanded there through these, these networks that were already existing uh, in these places. So uh, through that, I, I ended up in all sorts of places that I didn't plan to be, right? I, I got involved in a festival uh, organization and got to be in one of these big I got involved in several festivals in Kyoto somehow. In, in part, this has to do with, with the population change, right? Um, so a lot of these festivals, you need a lot of young people to be involved in them for the parades and for sort of you, you sort of carry this big, heavy palanquin. It's a, it's a big uh, sort of portable shrine that gets carried throughout the neighborhood. And they need young people to, to do this. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of places uh, haven't been able to continue their traditions because uh, there's so few young people in there. Um, so I think, you know, at the time <laughs> when I was younger, uh, they grabbed me and said, you have to be involved in this too. And through that, I was able then to talk to more people and get to know a little bit more about everyone's uh, thoughts about different things. So, so those are always, always fun to just sort of, you know, uh, stumble into these kind of interesting aspects of, of life that you didn't plan to in getting some discovery out of that. So also what I did, of course, was was spend a lot of time with older people. I spent a lot of time uh, visiting people in their homes, seeing what their, their family dynamics were like. And that was really interesting as well. Um, you know, sometimes I was there when there were arguments between, you know, all the people and, and their children who came to visit or something. And that was just about being being there in the home. I had to be there in the home in order to witness those kind of things. And I spent a lot of time with older people when they were doing things like going to visit their ancestors at the graves. And we would go and, and you know, pick up some flowers and go to the graves and clean up the graves together. And so that's another aspect, I think, of, of ethnography, the the sense of really using all of your senses in the uh, the process of listening and and observing and getting involved and participating with people alongside people and that was really uh, important for my research as well and what did all of this teach you about aging specifically for me ethnography was a way of helping me to attune to the things that the people I was 
listening to were were kind of attuned to. It was a way of slowing myself down sometimes to to their pace, not being too afraid of long pauses or you know intervals where not a lot seemed to be happening, being present, listening. And I think that was really helpful for me. I think it, it, it took a process, but I couldn't, I couldn't rush this, this research. I, I had to let it uh, unfold the way that it did. And so, uh, yeah, putting myself in, uh, into the, that situation helped me sort of pace myself, get a sense of that temporality, uh, get a sense of uh, changes over time as well. As people grew older, as they, they got sick, as they became more frail, I was able to uh, stay with them throughout the research and get a sense of, of how they responded to those changes as well. One of the things I really like about your book, because I think I cite you every time I say they're older people, they're not old people, because they're only older people around because there are younger people around. And I really like that relationality that you <laughs> emphasize in all your work. Thank you. Yes, uh, this was all about relations, wasn't it? Um, aging and loss began by exploring the relationship between older people and the recently deceased and the, and the ancestors and those who are in the, the other world. And looking at the background, the gerontological literature on religious coping and and so on, I didn't find a lot in there that that I felt really fit the case uh, of Japan. And uh, especially most of my sort of interlocutors were, were Buddhist. And I didn't find a whole lot in there that made sense for, for a Buddhist person. Um, so I, I Buddhism often emphasizes the, the sort of illusory or transitory nature uh, of reality the way that we shouldn't become attached to things, that that is the root of suffering. Um, and so traditionally, it's been very much you know, concerned with aging and illness and death. And that is something that uh, most people who have been invested in, in these kind of um, religious and spiritual beliefs have, have sort of picked up on. And they're, they're in a way, I think, comfortable thinking about death and, and this kind of transition in ways that other people may not be. And so that was really interesting to me. Again, it was that I go back to, to that first uh, encounter I had when I was you know, a teenager with this, this woman and her, her husband and, and the, the intimacy and the closeness and the, and the care that was uh, expressed in these rituals of memorial in the home, right, was something that really impacted me, right? Uh, I, th I think, uh, you know, growing up in the States and not seeing uh, representations of, of, of death uh, and the afterlife in the home, much less, you know, in the, in the main room of the home there where you have all the ancestors there, right, uh, watching you. You know, that was a very uh, new thing. Whenever I would go to visit someone, do an interview or something, I would bring a gift, a small gift, something, something to eat or something, and it would be placed on the altar for the, the ancestors to enjoy first. And I would 
often sort of ring a little bell and greet the ancestors and introduce myself. And it was very much as though they were present there. And they were very present for the people I was speaking with. And they were present in dreams and they are present in visions. And, and there was a sense that there, there was this watchfulness there. And I, I think that sense that, that loss and presence could weren't in, in, in conflict with each other, but could coexist in this experience. And that this could be very a very material thing, not just an abstract thought. I mean, this was material and it was lived and it was part of this practice. Every day, every day, making the food for the ancestors, right? That, I think, it just really struck me as, as something remarkable and something I really wanted to, to write about through the stories of the ind these individuals that were in the book. It all sounds so wonderful. <laughs> and in the monograph, you say that the social, political, and economic conditions of contemporary urban Japan are producing age subjectivities suspended between abandonment and hope. And we were wondering, could you expand a bit about what you mean by that phrase? Right. So, uh, of course, I'm interested in the daily lives of of sort of ordinary people. I mean, that really is the, the heart of the book and of, of this kind of research. But this is unfolding in, in a larger context, and that context is also important, right? And so the, the main context was uh, Japan's rapid population aging. So after World War II, there was another kind of short baby boom uh, and then after that, the fertility rate declined very quickly. And people's average life expectancy got longer and longer. So people were living a very long time. And, and you know, I, I think until very recently, Japanese people had the, the longest average life expectancy of any country in the world, which is pretty impressive. That's 126 million people, 125 million people. But average life expectancy was very long. It was not unusual for people to be living into their 90s or into uh, to 100 and beyond. So people were living a long time and, and there weren't as many children. And this has happened only in a few decades. And Japan has had to adapt to this. They've had to come up with some kind of policies that would be able to, to respond to this. And so uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how they're going to do this. What are the consequences of this? Uh, it's it set up a kind of dynamic where there's a, a kind of in, intergenerational or sort of uh, generational kind of conflict. And you have uh, also, along with this, increasing urbanization, younger people moving around a lot more, both within the country and, and going abroad. Uh, and so you have fewer older people that are living together with children. So the, the mode of, of care that was more popular before the war is, is no longer as popular. So older people are trying to figure out how, how they're going to spend these, these long, this long period of later life and how long they'll be able to stay independent and when they're going to need care and for how long are they going to be able to depend on their children? Are they going to be able to depend on on the state or, or whatever uh, professional care services. 
uh, are there. So people are always sort of thinking about this and there isn't the sense of security that perhaps existed, you know, only a couple generations back that there would be this expectation that one's children would care for you in old age. And so I, I think feelings of abandonment, uh, not only by one's own children, but, but by society as a whole, this feeling of not having a place in contemporary Japanese society, I think has, has deepened for a lot of people. It's sort of there uh, in the background, especially, I guess, of the, the sort of young old people, you know, post-retirement, but still very uh, active and, yeah, engaged with a lot of things. You know, they're thinking about what's going to happen when they get older. And then, of course, older and, and more frail people are become very concerned about this. So, so in, in a sense, that's about abandonment. But, you know, ab abandonment, as I began to write about this and, and think about it more, it seemed to me that abandonment is always sort of there in kinship relations. Abandonment and, and attachment, you know, they, they, those kind of things go together. Just as I'm, I'm saying grief and, and, law, and love, uh, or I guess, sort of those go together as well. So I think there's something to be said about exploring this in other contexts as well I, as just an aspect of, of kinship that maybe hasn't been focused on enough. But there's also hope, of course, right? And hope here is, is most tangibly sort of expressed in the memorialization of, of the ancestors. And so the notion that although one might have difficulty getting care in, in this life and in, in, in later life, there will be this point of transition where then one becomes an ancestor and will be cared for in, in that respect. Of course, older people uh, spend a lot of time caring for their own ancestors because that's the kind of care that they want to receive as well. They're able to both express care and, and sort of imagine themselves in that position as, as the recipients of care. And I, I think that it is a very sort of hopeful sense. I was really inspired by a lot of um, uh, anthropology around hope and, and the sense of waiting. I thought it resonated a lot with um, the kind of perspectives that I found among the older people I spoke to. And for them, that was a way of a, a sort of an, an alternate narrative to this more, I suppose, social, political kind of discourse about how are we going to care for an aging society? What are the economic and you know impacts of this and so on? Rather than limiting themselves to that, to being a burden on the state, a burden on their family, they had this alternate narrative um, that they were living uh, alongside that listening to you, I'm also wondering those rituals of memorialization and continuing to care for people that are, have died, is that something that the younger generation is still being socialized with, or is that mainly older people doing that for older people who have died? Well, a lot of people who I spoke to saw the problem in this uh, lack of co-residence. So when they think about how they learned to care for the ancestors, it was just by, you know, through, through kind of mimesis, you just kind of picked it up because that's what people were doing around you. And 
you did the same things they did. It was sort of a, like a family recipe, right? It was like a family tradition. Every family did it a little bit different, which is also very interesting. But uh, there was all this variation. It was about these relationships and this intimacy and this family history. But many people said, well, you know, I don't, I don't live my, with my children anymore. They're away. Um, they married someone who's, who has sort of a different tradition, and they're not so interested in what we do anymore. Um, so there was this sense that that this was uh, there was a disconnection there, right? Um, that had to do with the lack of proximity. And so there are still uh, periodic holidays or memorial occasions which the family will all gather together uh, and do these rituals, and those are really important for that kind of process of socialization. But I think that's becoming less and less accessible. So when I talked to younger people, um, they didn't have very many experiences of attending funerals or you know, being involved in either end-of-life care stuff or um, in the, the, the memorial and mortuary rituals. And, and, and these are also becoming some smaller affairs where fewer family, fewer extended family are being invited to these kind of rituals. So again, that socialization process isn't there. To some extent, there is a feeling of resignation that a lot of people have adopted because of this, and they realize that times are changing and, you know, it won't be the same for, for the next generation. So, you know, one one of the people I spoke to was really into these memorial rituals for, for the ancestors and had a lot of graves and a lot of rituals that he did. And he showed me this memorial tablet um, that he keeps in the home altar. And it had the name of of his, his uh, father on it. And it was a very sort of long name. The longer the name, the more expensive the name. But it was this long sort of posthumous name that showed his respect for for his family, and he said, "Well, I hope my, I hope my son does this for me when I uh, am older. You know, I hope that he, you know, gives me a, a very, you know, wonderful name like this." And then his wife in the other room said, "Oh, he's not going to do that for you. Are you kidding me? You know, it's ungrateful. He's not." <laughs> and we kind of said, "Yeah, well, maybe so. You know, I, I don't know, but you know, he was hopeful uh, that these kind of things would go on." Another person I, I uh, interviewed on several occasions, you know, after she retired and she got sort of a lump sum of retirement money, she got, uh, she decided that she was going to get her family altar sort of spruced up a little bit, you know, get the, get it cleaned up, get it looking very nice. You know, she spent a lot of this money. She could have done something else, gone traveled or something like that. But she spent a lot of money on this altar. And I think that that symbolic gesture wasn't lost on her children, and they saw how important this was for her. And that, that's going to impact, I think, how they care for her when, when she is in that altar, right, as this is passed down in, uh, through the generation. So there are little ways in which older people are able to sort of, you know, give hints and manipulate, you know, talk about how they would like to be cared for. It wasn't uncommon for them to get new gravestones, for example, things like that. So these kind of symbolic gestures, you know, showed that they wanted to carry on these traditions uh, in some fashion. Right. And you spoke a bit about abandonment earlier, and we wanted to go a bit more deeper into that because you talk about Abasuteyama, 
which is a centuries-old legend of abandoning older people. Could you tell us a bit about this legend uh, and what this means in Japan? Yeah, this was, for me, uh, a point at which a lot of the stories that I was hearing from older people just suddenly clicked into focus. Uh, I read some of these uh, tales of Ubasteyama, and this is kind of, yeah, a centuries-old folktale, you know, something that got passed down. It has several different iterations, uh, several different versions, but nonetheless, everyone knows, everyone in Japan knows something about Ubasteyama. They've heard it somewhere, and it's sort of in the atmosphere, and I thought that was odd because this is a story about abandoning a a member of the family who is grown old and uh, leaving her on this mountain, right? Obaste Yama means the mountain where you throw away granny and leaving her in this place to die of exposure and, and, and starvation. And that seems just like a, a, just a horrific tale, right? Uh, not only because you know, it involves this death, but in, it, it's murder at the hands of one's own family, right? And yet this is something that has gone on through that is stuck around. People keep on telling this tale. As I looked into the different iterations of the story, right, I started to think of it as a as a way in which perhaps people are narrating, are making set trying to make sense of this notion of abandonment, right? The notion that as as someone gets older and approaches the end of life that you you kind of have to let go of them in order to in order for the family to move on and that tension between letting go and and wanting to to stay attached i think was very that's what the story is really about right so the the i guess the the high point of drama in the story is when the son is carrying his mother on his back right and you know, what a better metaphor can you come up with here? You have the mother on his back and he's going up this mountain and he is taking her to this spot where he will abandon her. And the anguish and the and the ambivalence and the tension that he's feeling on this journey. And in different versions, the mother is it has different responses. Sometimes she doesn't want to go. Sometimes she does want to go and the son doesn't want to go. So there are different ways in which that tension is is narrated and i thought that was very interesting as well as a, as a means of exploring family relationships and this kind of attachment so there's been some kind of controversy about you know i don't know controversy but some people think oh yeah this really happened you know and i often would hear people japanese people say oh yeah this really happened in in our history this you know a long time ago people used to do this for real and then other scholars and historians have kind of said, well, we don't really know. They don't really have good evidence of this kind of thing actually happening for real. And of course, we can track the, the story, the folktale disseminating um, from uh, the continent, perhaps from India, but through China and into Japan. So it hasn't been just the Japanese thing either. I, I think that's important, too. But, but that is nonetheless popular uh, in Japan, and, and there's a lot of uh, different strong feelings about it. Thank you, and it's so interesting to listen to you. A lot, or I'd say 
almost all of my very limited knowledge of Japan comes from David P's novels. So it's really nice to to listen to someone talk through these ideas and just give you insight into different cultures. And um, one of the papers you've written is entitled "The Limits of Dwelling and Unwitnessed Death," and in that you note that in Japan, an unattended death is known as kodakushi, which I'm sure you can pronounce uh, more accurately for us, or lonely death. Can you tell us a bit about what this is and the sort of notion of, of unwitnessed deaths in Japan? Yes, so it's pronounced um, kodokushi, I think. And uh, this refers mostly to people who have died alone in their homes, uh, unwitnessed, as I say, Often they go undiscovered for weeks, sometimes months, or or very long time. In in some rare cases, you know, over a year. And so it, it's not only about dying alone, but it's also about being undiscovered and and kind of people not noticing that you've gone, and not noticing that you've died or uh, anything, and not noticing that you've gone. So it was this absence of of the person even before the event of death and then afterwards. This is something that has been increasing with infrequency and has become a growing kind of concern in Japan. Of course, it, it might happen other places, of course, as well. But I think uh, in, in, in Japan, the notion that one's last moments should be uh, surrounded by family and in, in not not by oneself, right? It should be witnessed. It has been a very sort of long-standing kind of, uh, ideal way to die. And so this notion that, that people are, are dying alone, undiscovered, uncared for by their family or their community was something that really struck people as, as really threatening that, that sense of identity, right? Uh, uh, the sense that we care for people at the end of life. So uh, these uh, unwitnessed deaths, these, these kodokushi, as I said, they've been increasing uh, over the years. There's sort of an estimate of around 30,000 people in Japan that, that die in this manner or sort of are discovered to have died in this manner uh, every year. But it's also taken on a, a public presence as well as people discuss these cases, as they become part of the, the social imaginary, I guess. So there are newspaper articles about this. There are these sort of very vivid uh, depictions of kodokushi, of the aftermath of kodokushi, when people are called in to clean up the, um, the house afterwards. And these are often houses that have been uh, not very well cared for for a long time, right? So they're an older person living alone, someone who's very frail, not able to, to, to care for themselves very well. Uh, and often there's kind of this, this mess, right? There's, there's this kind of smell that's associated with these kind of houses. So it's not only that these people have had perhaps kind of messy lives, right? That they haven't kept up relationships, that they haven't had good relationships with their family and so on, but they have this material a sort of mess in their house as well. And so there's a discursive or a narrative component to this. There's a there's this sensory component to it, which is very odd because there's sort of a lack of a, of a person in a way, right? This absent person as well, um, but all of this other stuff going on. Um, so I describe it as being very spectral, 
and that was my that was my impression of of how people spoke about these lonely deaths that it was kind of this haunting presence that was always around they weren't sure if someone in their neighborhood maybe had died and they just haven't discovered them yet and they knew that this was happening all over the place and they were concerned about it and you would see empty houses all around and you wondered right you know all an older person died alone there or there and and so people discussed this and they saw it in the environment but it was always somehow the person was sort of always beyond their reach right beyond their ability to witness isolated alone in their homes so uh what i wanted to do in that in that article is really unpack that that whole sort of event of of kodokushi looking sort of beyond the the sort of discourse of sort of moral panic of, of kodokushi in, in the news and look at how uh, other people uh, in, in my field work were uh, thinking about kodokushi as well thank you and we'll pop a link to that and your other papers in the show notes and other websites so that people can go and read that if, if they'd like to now you start the paper that we've just been discussing now by writing the night i began writing this article started off like most others during my field work my two children had just gone to sleep both of them curled up on a shared futon upstairs. Slowly, so as not to wake them, I stepped down the steep, creaky wooden staircase, hoping to squeeze out another hour of writing before I could slip into my own futon. Before I reached the ground floor, I began to hear ambulance sirens nearby. Now, we wanted to ask you about your writing process and to what extent you tend to insert yourself or not insert yourself into your writing and how you sort of adopted and approached this kind of really, for me, beautiful writing style. Thank you. I uh, this was um, a sort of experiment to bring myself into this piece, but I I think that it was important to be there, to be in the writing and in the story of this, not at the center, but uh, in a way to be witnessing and to be reflecting on what that that witnessing entailed. I guess for me, in a way that it sort of springs out. Uh, in the midst of this this sort of flow of of everyday life, this is one of the things I really love about ethnographic writing is this way of that the ethnographer is is part of the story and the way that we can connect with their experience as well as the experience of the people that they that they are um, writing about. So I, I wanted to try that. And uh, this is, you know, this is the truth. This is really what happened. And, and I think the the idea that uh, these kind of, that kodokushi and, uh, kind of springs up in, in the midst of everyday life is something that I wanted to capture there. That, that there was this moment where I was caught by this, by the sort of the edge of, <laughs> of this, Thing called kodokushi, right? We all sort of came out onto the street as the ambulance was there with the lights, and and we we kind of tried to figure out what was going on and and who had been hurt and what house was it, and and we discussed all of those things. That's that's one aspect of how how kodokushi, how death is, touches people's lives, right? And uh, in some senses, it was very ordinary for a lot of the people in the neighborhood. This wasn't the first time. You know, an ambulance had, had come by in, in the night and, and you know, it was an older person that had an accident or was uh, or was dead. And so 
but for me it was very it was very striking and I had to put that in there and we'll bring up now to your current research project and, and what you're working on at the moment which is focused on older ex-offenders in Japan and England can you tell us a bit about what this project is well I I just finished a book that is about people caring for older family members so unpaid unpaid uh, informal carers and their experiences, which I saw as a kind of natural progression from the work that I did on older people and ritual and care of the ancestors. Um, there was all this care, you know, concern about care, and, and so I wanted to turn to the carers. After doing that work, which was also comparative work between uh, Japan and England, I wanted to look at older people who didn't have those family members around that were a bit more isolated. This goes together, I guess, with my interest in kodokushi as well and, and isolated older people. I have been interested uh, in this for a little while because I, I started to read reports that there were a lot of older people that were committing crimes in Japan and this was becoming a problem. I'd been reading these reports for years and I thought, now there's a population that is marginalized not only because of being alone, being older, without family, but, but also because they have this criminal record. And I wonder how they're being cared for, how they're thinking about um, how they want to be cared for. Um, so that was kind of the initial motivation for doing this kind of research with older uh, ex-offenders in Japan and England. So I went to Japan, I guess the, around that time, actually, just around a year that I, I uh, did my research, there were several articles that had come out uh, about older people intentionally committing crimes so that they could go to prison. So the notion that prison could be a place, not only of punishment, but of care, was also something I wanted to explore, that that was becoming uh, <laughs> a kind of care strategy. So around 2017, also in England, uh, there was a report that was that had said something about how well it had been reported that that the prisons were the largest care provider for for older men in in uh, England and Wales, and so that was very striking as well that we had increasing numbers of older people being incarcerated in in England as well. It wasn't just in Japan, but the profiles were very different. I think when you compare. Uh, Japanese older people and uh, all the people in, in, in England who, who, are, who are in the prisons, right? And so in the case of Japan, I was, uh, well, I talked to a variety of different sort of formerly incarcerated older people, but most of the people, who, older people who are in prisons in Japan are there uh, on very short sentences, mostly for things like shoplifting shoplifting, larceny, these kind of things. They go to a restaurant and get a meal and don't pay for it, which is a kind of, it's kind of classified as a kind of fraud. But, you know, these very minor crimes, right? And even in cases of uh, theft or larceny, it's only a very small amount. It's, you know, sort of an average of about 3,000 yen, which is, you know, like 20 pounds or something. And so it was uh, one characteristic of this population was that they have a very high recidivism rate. So it's, it's much higher than, than younger uh, offenders and it has this type of crime. So, um, so it does seem that, that there's a, a different kind of chronicity, I guess, to, to these crimes. 
Now, when I talk to people, they say, of course, I don't want to go back to prison. Prison's horrible. I don't want to go back. Um, but they would also say, well, prison was also easy. And, you know, as long as you just kind of follow the schedule, it's, it's, it's livable. And as opposed to being on the outside where I don't have anything to do, I don't have anyone, I have to figure out all of these uh, sort of things about how to get care, how to get uh, sort of benefit income, you know, and it was very stressful and very lonely. And so although they said, okay, no, and I don't want to go back to prison. If I go back to prison at this age, you know, I'll probably die there. They nonetheless were going back um, very often. So, so it was very difficult for them to access the kind of care and support that would uh, help them stay out of, of prisons because prisons are not nice places for, for older people in general. And, you know, it, it, that is, that's the case in England as well. Um, so there's lots and lots of data about the deleterious health effects of prison for older people in, in England. And I think there's still big gaps in the care of people when they are released, often who have very complex health needs. Uh, and although there is a, they can get a care assessment and so on, uh, it's often very hard for these individuals to follow up on that and really make sure that their care assessment is followed through without additional support. And if they're estranged from family or friends and things like that, it can be very, very hard for them to, to, to resettle. Now, before we leave, we've got one more question we'd like to ask you, which we want to focus really on any advice that you can offer. And perhaps if you could tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you might have faced in your career you've already talked about that briefly the challenges of, of parenting and writing at the same time and just yeah give any tips you can to anyone who'd be interested in a career in anthropology and or aging well i suppose if you're interested in in older people in processes of aging i think there's so much i, I don't know there's so many things that that <laughs> so many directions you could go with this uh, there's so much that I needs more uh, research and more field work and and more delving into the experiences of of older people. So anthropology of aging, for a long time, I think had been uh, very centered, uh, mostly sort of on these these northern countries, on Europe and America, on these you know on cert which have a certain kind of uh, welfare systems, certain kind of health landscape, and so on. It's been focused a lot on on nursing care, on on sort of um, you know residential care, long term care facilities, and so on, uh, and life within those places. But as the world is aging, right, uh, you have a lot of places in the world that are aging very rapidly, and, and not just the north. So I think that what we're going to see more and more in in gerontology more generally in the study of aging more generally is that we need to know more about how aging and uh, you know sort of intergenerational relationships are developing uh, outside of the kind of global north countries right so i'm really excited about this area being explored more i think that you can study aging all over the world right now and people are starting to do that in collaboration with people in those different places around the world so that, for me, is a really exciting area. And for people who are interested in these very 
current subjects about decolonization, about uh, different, you know, looking at different methods of, of uh, participatory research and, and collaborative research and getting different perspectives on the world. Uh, I think this is one area that is going to be really fascinating to explore. So I think for, for early career scholars interested in, in aging, you know, the world is, is open to you and you really have an opportunity to, to explore something very new outside, you know, apart from what has already been written and really make a contribution to this and to our understanding of, of what it means to grow older, right? And I think that should be very exciting. I think this research is also just really enriching, right? And uh, it, it really has helped me, I think, to to see myself in relation to other generations that might be kind of corny, but I think it, it's, it's deepened my appreciation for, for the ways in which uh, we can be connected to people of other generations. And, you know, I see the, the, the more vividly the kind of inequalities and, and, and separateness of different generations in society. And, and I think that is uh, something that, that uh, more and more people should be uh, interested in and pay attention to. So I think with, with uh, you know, looking at, for example, these these older uh, ex-offenders, you know, that's that's uh, an area that maybe most people wouldn't think of, you know, as sort of aging research or something like that, you know, uh, to do something in that area. But uh, there's all kinds of areas like that that could be very interesting. People, older people have very, you know, are, are all, in all aspects of society, I suppose. It's been really, really great to talk to you and, and, and to hear your thoughts on, on so many different things. And yeah, from so many perspectives that, you know, we're both interested in in work with people living in secure environments and, and we're both obviously always interested in the challenges of trying to juggle life with, with work. So it's been great on top of hearing about ageing um, more broadly to hear about those things too. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's so great to have another anthropologist. First episode of 2023, because our first ever episode with Dr. Erica Borgstrom. Erica is a medical anthropologist, am I right? Yes. Uh, like you, you're a medical anthropologist. So it's really exciting to have more anthropology and more discussion of ethnography. And we've been talking a little bit between recording this and listening to the episode again about ethnography, anthropology, aging and different writing styles. Is that right? Yeah. And it, like, especially with a methodology like ethnography, it just shows how some things just take time. And also doing that kind of research, a lot of the time is spent waiting and being in places and thinking, am I really doing research? Because I'm doing nothing. But a lot of that is the research because you have to really go along with people's everyday lives and routines and a lot of our lives are spent doing very little <laughs> or not like big events or big things and yeah I absolutely love reading Jason's work as well because I feel he really paints a picture and you feel you're there and even with some like rituals or things that I had never heard about or never seen you you see some kind of visual of what that might look like and I find it really amazing that writing can really bring you to such a different world and such a different experience completely and I really like the focus on people's everyday lives and the slowness of that and the sometimes the routines or the monotony or just the quietness and the really nice 
experiences of I really like listening to Jason talk about going into people's houses and taking an offering for the ancestors just being part of their daily lives we're recording this on New Year's Eve and we recorded at the start and we were like you know happy new year but that's actually tomorrow it hasn't happened yet and I'm always interested in the difference between creative writing fictional writing that it has dramatic effect and the sort of more engrossing descriptive writing that you can have in things like ethnography what makes a good life quiet happy slow nice joyful moments some suffering typically makes a bad narrative because it lacks drama so i'm always like oh you know happy new year now's the moment in the narrative where we're all going to get hit by a comet <laughs> by saying it's going you know all this like what's the dramatic turn going to be and of course often in life most of the time there isn't a dramatic turn and you can certainly find wonderful narratives in literature in, in 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 film and television that embrace the nothing happening where of course a lot is happening all the time and i really like in jason's work this teasing out the everyday teasing out the the things that have just become can be assumed i think if you if you look into people's lives i suppose that's largely the nature of of, of anthropology i'm sure you'll correct me if i'm wrong is paying attention to things that often go unnoticed because they seem so ordinary or every day and, and really teasing out those experiences. When I was being taught anthropology, that was one of the main things also just question everything, but also question things like a lot of things that you take for granted. And the everyday life is something you typically take for granted because it, it just feels like a given. But it's, I don't know if I've said this before, but they were small exercises during our classes. Questions like, do you brush your teeth before or after breakfast? Or uh, And then people were so convinced, no, you have to do it either before or either after because everyone does that. And it's it's such minor things that reveal a lot about people and brushing your teeth is not really a big life-changing example. But it's the same with... What I really enjoy about this work as well, I, you can see with Japan's life expectancy that there is also this ideal picture of, oh, in Japan, people, all these people grow old and they grow very old and they're all very healthy, eating healthy Japanese food and and they still memorize their ancestors. And there can be this picture of this very ideal society. And to a large extent, Japan has lovely things, but then also his work on the unwitnessed deaths and lonely deaths and his work on older people in prison also shows that societies are complicated and there's not just one positive or one negative, but it's just, yeah, a messy, complicated life. And while I'm saying this, my nephew just walked in and he's handed me some chocolate because I'm back home. Get me to where you are, chocolate delivering for the dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I really felt that phrase he used where for some older people in Japan, pr prison is livable. Like, livable not being anything more than, yeah, survivable, livable, a bit of routine, some food. N not as, because, he, you know, he really emphasised that that's not something anyone wanted or a good experience. It wasn't going to be a joyful life. It's, prisons are a difficult place to be and to live. But it is livable with, with contrast with something that might be even greater suffering outside of prison. So that was something that, I really thought, yeah, it's really interesting to have that sort of insight. Mm. And the comparative approach would be is a really interesting one in terms of, of prisons in different countries and those different 
kinds of experiences I was just reading this week about Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe watching the tennis in isolation in prison. She met, I think she met Andy Murray and she said, I watched, I watched you win at Wimbledon. Because it's not something you necessarily think about people's lives in prison. You don't get that much insight into people's daily experience. If you know someone or a family member or someone you work with or study with or, or you know, have a have an experience with you might know a bit about it but prisons in different countries can be a bit of a unknown it's a very much hidden world i think but it reminds me of so i did research on cancer in prison and one of the women i interviewed felt really lonely and isolated being the only woman in the prison with a cancer diagnosis but at the same time this woman from one of the presenters of a british morning show was also going through breast cancer at the same time. So for her, it was when she was able to watch telly in prison, she had someone who was going through the same experience as her, which is, it's also, it comes back to the, the power of TV. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's, it's also, yeah, you, people are still part, they're taken away from some aspect of society, but at that same time, they are still part of society in their have their own bits and their own routine and their own rules. So like in Japan, there is so many older people in prison in the UK. And they, I think some of them will also probably have committed a crime because they want to be around people. And it's just heartbreaking that that's something that people feel they need to do. Mm. And there's a lot of cultural stereotypes about prisons. I remember sending you earlier this year a message saying you must watch the TV series Atlanta. Because in, in an episode of that, there's a really sort of funny plot line about one of these central characters, Paperboy, goes to prison, to a Dutch prison. And it's like luxury. And he's like, I want to stay. He's being brought these fancy meals. He's got his own room. Like it's, it's of course, it's completely, I'm sure, inauthentic as a representation of a Dutch prison. But it plays into a lot of cultural stereotypes about the idea of these really easy places to be that being in prison in the Netherlands would be the best place to be in prison at. and of course you'll have more insight into that but I, I hope you get to watch it this year and, and reflect on why it is that those cultural ideas have come to have such power. I think what people also can really take away from this episode is that the field of ageing studies is wide open and a lot of topics have never been researched a lot of yeah, empirical studies talking with older people or doing research with older people there are so many things you could design and do and collaborate with people that I think it's very I'm really looking forward to the next 10-20 years of aging studies and also I'm hoping to see more like Jason's work the overlap between aging and dying because I feel there's a lot of research that is always it's in one of the two camps whereas if you're aging, you're dying and vice versa. So I feel there should be more and there could be more really interesting work around those topics. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedeafstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment. Follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word.